Please stand with me as we read the Word of God from Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34, Luke 18, 31 through 34. Hear now the Word of God. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. All of God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. Let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for the uh, word that you have given, the word that you've inspired and preserved, uh, the word that endures uh, forever. And we ask that as we look to that word now, this record of our Lord's ministry, that you would teach us what this passage means for us, Uh, that we would come away with uh, helpful applications, helpful considerations, that we might better understand what our Lord came to do and what our response should be to it. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we come uh, to this passage in the Gospel of Luke, which is one of our Lord's predictions concerning his death and his resurrection. There are, by my count, four predictions in the Gospel of Luke concerning his death. And one of the most puzzling things that we encounter when we read the Gospels is how many times Jesus told them very plainly what was going to happen and how many times they didn't understand it. Has that ever puzzled you as you read the Gospels? You read this plain English translation of what our Lord said and you think it's rather obvious what was going to take place, and it's a little strange to see that the disciples were so thick-headed. They didn't grasp what was taking place. They didn't uh, understand these things, and they were surprised when our Lord was betrayed and given over to death, and you'd be thinking that this would have all helped them to understand what was going to take place. But as we see, this saying was hidden from them. And the question of why the disciples so struggled to grasp our Lord's words, I think directs our attention to an important topic. And that topic is the necessity for spiritual insight and knowledge granted by God himself if we would understand and believe the gospel. We fundamentally are in the same place as the disciples were. We need God to reveal these things to us if we will grasp them. It's one thing to just hear words in plain English and intellectually process their meaning. It's another thing to believe them, to understand them, to, and to put our trust in the Savior. Now, we're going to hit a few different topics this evening. They're uh, somewhat related in that they're all part of this passage. But let me provide a brief outline for you as we go into this passage. The first topic is that our Lord said that everything that was going to come to pass would fulfill the prophets. Now from this, I want to speak about how we see the incomprehensible wisdom and the comprehensive sovereignty of our God in bringing about our salvation. We're going to see how God 
promised before, uh, the, before Jesus had come in the Old Testament scriptures what was going to take place. And we see that everything happened according to the plan of God. So that's one topic that we're going to see. The second is that our Lord is self-conscious about his impending death and his resurrection. He, he is committed to following through with this event, with this salvation that he has come to bring. And I think from this we are going to see the love of our Lord for his people, the commitment that he has for our good, for our salvation. Jesus, of course, could have shrunk back from that calling And of course, he struggled very deeply in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he went through with it, and he was committed to going to Jerusalem, even though he knew what was going to take place. And then the third topic is the one I already mentioned, that this saying was hidden from the disciples. And from this, we're going to learn about the absolute necessity of spiritual insight being granted to us by God, if we will understand and believe the gospel. So keep these topics in mind as we go through our passage. We'll begin here with verse 31 and the beginning of our Lord's prediction. It says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. This period in the Gospel of Luke is all part of Jesus' long journey to Jerusalem. After Luke chapter 9, if you remember that section, Peter had confessed Jesus as the Christ. And ever since that point, we've been working our way to Jerusalem because now the disciples at least have the base understanding of who Jesus is. And he says, all right, now that you've confessed me as the Messiah, the one who is to come, we're going up to Jerusalem. We're going to face this uh, difficult time. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be scourged, and I'm going to rise again from the dead. And yet, after event after event, prediction after prediction, the disciples are not grasping this. Now, eventually, we know, following the resurrection, they would go through a process of realization about what, was take, what had taken place. You remember in Luke chapter 24, Jesus speaks to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he says, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that God had promised. Did you not understand that these things must happen for the Scriptures to be fulfilled? And then he unfolds to them the greatest Old Testament sermon probably ever preached and told them all about what the prophets had spoken about these things. And eventually he appears to the 12, uh, or the 11 at this point, and he speaks to them about, uh, he unfolds the law and the prophets and the Psalms, and he tells them about what these things had already predicted. And so eventually the disciples will come to understand these things, But we have the benefit of coming to this passage. We have the benefit of having the whole 66 book collection, uh, as well as all the preaching and interpretation of those 66 books over 2,000 years. That's a great benefit to us as we seek to understand the scriptures and to see the wisdom and the, the sovereignty of our God in bringing about redemption. And that's what I want to focus in on here is that everything that God said would happen has happened according to plan. That's what Jesus says. He says, all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. 
Now, if you look at the writings of the Apostle Peter, he eventually better understood this. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter speaks about how in the entire Old Testament period, the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets. And when the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets, that Spirit was telling them what to say and what to write down. And the Spirit of Christ actually predicted all that was going to come to pass. Listen to what Peter wrote. 1 Peter 1, verse 10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So there's two things that you can be looking for as you read the Old Testament scriptures. That, and this should give you a sense of excitement as you read the Old Testament, that you can be looking for these things. Uh, back when I was a child, we had the Where's Waldo books. Do you remember those? Any of you seen those books? Those were so much fun. They had these big pictures, and there's all these details, and you had to find where Waldo was. Well, well something of that may, may uh, be applicable as we think about the Old Testament in a much more important way. As we look to the Old Testament, we want to be looking for these two things, the prediction of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That's what Peter says the prophets were speaking about. And we do indeed find these things in the Old Testament scriptures many times predicted for us. Sometimes it's clearer than other times, Uh, But all throughout, Jesus says that the Old Testament scriptures are about him. Now, I want to take us through just a brief example of uh, how the Old Testament scriptures did indeed speak about these two categories, the sufferings and the glories to follow. I want us to see how God has been faithful to his word, how he has brought to pass exactly what he he said he would bring to pass. And this is important for us, I think, as an application, brothers and sisters, because we need to trust God for his word every day, don't we? We need to believe his promises. And if we can see with our own eyes the past fulfillment of the prophecies of the scriptures, we can believe him for all the other things that he said he's going to bring to pass. That's one of the reasons that this is important. Well, as we think about the Old Testament, you might be inclined, if, if, you, if I was to ask you, what is the most obvious example of a prophecy in the Old Testament about the sufferings of Christ? You might think of a few examples. Perhaps Isaiah 53 comes to mind, the uh, suffering servant uh, prophecy of Isaiah 53. And since we're a bit more familiar with that one, I want to direct our attention to a psalm. And I want to look at, with, uh, with you at Psalm 22. And if you want to open to Psalm 22, you can do that. I am going to read a few verses from Psalm 22 because we're looking here for the sufferings predicted and the glories that would follow. Psalm 22, verse 1, the Psalm of David here begins with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? You read these Psalms of David, and on one hand, you can see that there's aspects of the Psalms that are applicable to David's life. David was persecuted at times. He had enemies against him. He suffered various things. And so we can see points of relevance for David's life in the Psalms. But then there's times where we read the Psalms of David, and we're thinking, I don't know if that quite fits David's reign. I don't know if that's quite come to pass yet. 
You read these psalm like Psalm 110, or you read later in Psalm 22 of the nations turning to the Lord, and you're thinking, that didn't happen during David's reign. Something's missing here. We're not quite getting the whole psalm yet, are we? And so that's how we need to be thinking about these things. David, of course, is the Messiah at that point. He's the anointed one of God, uh, and he's reigning over the people of God. But David is not the ultimate Messiah. So look at these words of Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, you'll, you'll know, of course, that when our Lord Jesus was crucified, these were the words that he spoke upon the cross. He cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Experiencing the wrath of God and the curse of God against sin, he he felt forsaken by the Father. He was experiencing something uh, that no human being had ever experienced in that way. He was forsaken. Now then look at verse 8 of Psalm 22. We keep tracing out some of the predictions Verse 8 is the, the mockery of those that were against David. It says, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. This is the mockery of the persecuting uh, enemies of God. They're mocking David and said, He's trusted in God. Where's God now? Where's God going to come through for him? Well, you remember that our Lord Jesus, he experienced this very same mocking in his crucifixion. Matthew 27, listen for the, the echo of these words in Matthew 27, 41 through 43. It says, likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now. If he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. You hear the echo of Psalm 22 there. He trusted in God, let him deliver him. And of course, we know that our God, our father did indeed deliver Christ, but it was through his resurrection to come on the the Lord's day that was to follow. We keep going. Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18. We keep looking for the prediction of the sufferings. For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Indeed, all of these things our Lord experienced, he was pierced in his hands and his feet they they cast lots for his clothing this uh this group of these soldiers and the mock, the mocking jews surrounded him he experienced all of these things that psalm 22 describes now that's a part of psalm 22 that describes the sufferings the prediction of the sufferings that the spirit of christ inspired david to write but the psalm does not end there if you go to the later portions of the psalm part of which we recited as we began our service this evening look at verses 27 through 28 of psalm 22 now ask yourself how do we get from verses 16 through 18 you're pierced jesus is pierced that is you're suffering there's these people surrounding you they're mocking you how do we get from that to the words of verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. What an amazing transition from suffering 
to a prediction of glory to come. We know that these promises that David is describing, they only take place in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is only through his reign over all things, following his ascension and his resurrection, that the nations of the earth turn to God. This is just one picture of how the Old Testament scriptures predict the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow. And examples, of course, could be multiplied beyond this. But what I want you to see is the wisdom of God in our redemption and his absolute comprehensive sovereignty in bringing it about. That not one word of the Lord has failed in its purposes in bringing these things to pass. Now, if we see the Lord's hand at work in these prophecies that we can trace the fulfillment of, What sort of confidence should we have about the promises that God has made to us at the present, that we presently live upon? We have many promises that are future in relation to us. Of course, we can think about the increase of Christ's kingdom. We should have absolute confidence that Jesus Christ is going to bring every enemy under his footstool, uh, that that is going to come to pass. But we can also personally be convinced that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the last day. These promises we must firmly believe are true. And we have good reason to believe they are true as we look at the fulfillment of God's word in the past. So that brings us to our second topic, which is in verses 32 through 33, we see our Lord's commitment to our redemption. Let's look at verses 32 and 33. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Our Lord, of course, was a a prophet. He, He knew the future. He predicted the future. And here he predicts the most important events of the Gospels, his death and his resurrection. As we've said before, this is not the first time that he predicted these things. But these things were shocking to the disciples. Back in Luke 9, you remember that Peter rebuked Jesus for saying these things. He had the gall to think that he could correct the Son of God and say, these things will never happen to you, Jesus, because they were so contrary to human wisdom and popular expectation. The disciples could not grasp these things. But even though they did not realize it at the time, these predictions, these events that were predicted, are in fact the very manifestation of the power and wisdom of God. These are words of first importance if we are Christians. 1 Corinthians 15 says, The words of first importance are concerning the death and concerning the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would ask you, are these words of first importance to you? Do you see in them the power and wisdom of God? Have you been given insight to understand these things? To be able to see God's purposes and to see God's mercy and God's love to you in these things? Well, our Lord was very committed to his redemption. He he spoke about it often following Luke 9 and And we we read about how he, even on the Mount of Transfiguration, was talking with Moses and Elijah about what? Well, Luke 9, verse 30 and 31 tells us, 
what their conversation was about. It says, Behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, or you might translate it, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's what they were talking about. That was the thing of significance for Moses and Elijah. This wasn't just a a random chat about insignificant things. They were talking about the fulfillment of God's promises, all the things that Moses and Elijah had looked forward to. That's what Jesus was talking with them about. And then in Luke 9, verse 51, there's an interesting note that Luke gives us about our Lord's commitment and his focus, his steadfastness in this mission. It says in Luke 9, 51, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Sometimes translated, he set his face like a flint, like a, un, a stone that is absolutely committed to go to Jerusalem. And this is him knowing what's going to happen in Jerusalem. What if you were in this position? Well, if, if, you're, if you were in this position hearing these things, you'd be like Thomas. You remember when Jesus says we're going up to Jerusalem to raise Lazarus? He says, let us go that we may die with him. There wasn't a whole lot of hope uh, in the case of Thomas. But if we were in this position, would we be this committed to going to Jerusalem? Wouldn't we rather Go in the opposite direction of Jerusalem, kind of like Jonah. Run away from your mission, that's what Jonah did. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't run away from his mission. Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Yes, it was a hard mission, but Jesus had joy set before him. The joy of the redemption of his people and the glory of his Father. And what we see in this commitment, this steadfast setting to go to Jerusalem, is our Lord's loving commitment to redeem his people. Our Lord so loves his people, he so loves us, that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. As we sing in the hymn, the church is one foundation. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. This is what Jesus did. He came from heaven to seek his bride. He, he humbled himself, born in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Uh, dealing with this life of humiliation, and now setting out for the hardest mission that any human being has ever faced, and he did it because he loved his people. And if he gave his own blood for his church, do you think that he is committed to now continuing to love and continuing to cherish his church? He died for this church. Do you think he's committed to it? He is committed to the church's well-being, to the church's sanctification, that he might present her blameless, as Ephesians 5 says. And you know that our Lord loves the church, but when we say the word church, we don't want to think of this impersonally, because the church is made up of living stones, isn't it? People. Our Lord loves his people. He loves Todd Strasser. He loves Abigail Swanson, he loves Jessica Suiso, he loves Brenda Swanson, just to name a few of the living stones that he loves. And he's committed to their redemption. He has gone through the difficulty, the agony, the suffering, and the death that was necessary to redeem his people. 
And he still loves his church. That love is never going to be extinguished, is it? Now from his place in heaven, exalted above all things, he reigns over all and he reigns over his church in love. John Bunyan spoke of the love of Christ. He said, love in Christ decays not, nor can be tempted so to do by anything that happens or that shall happen hereafter in the object so beloved. Nothing that his church does can make him not love his church is basically what John Bunyan says. He loves his church. It doesn't decay. And you and I may certainly doubt our own love at times. There's good reason to doubt the quality or amount of our love at times. But you must never doubt the love of Christ for his people. Bunyan goes on, he has some additional helpful meditations on the perfections of Christ's love for his people. He He says, it is common for equals to love and for superiors to be beloved. So he says, you know, in human relationships, equals, people on equal standing, they love each other. Or you might admire superiors above you, you love them. He says, but for the king of princes, for the son of God, for Jesus Christ to love man thus, this is amazing. And that so much the more for that man, the The object of his love is so low, so mean, so vile, so undeserving, and so inconsiderable as by the scriptures everywhere he is described to be. Love from Christ requires no taking beauteousness in the object to be beloved. That means that the object doesn't have to be lovable on its own. It can act of and from itself without all such kind of dependencies. The Lord Jesus sets his heart to love them. And so, brothers and sisters, we see the love of Christ in his commitment to go to Jerusalem, his commitment in predicting what was going to take place and not backing down from it. He loved his church, he's redeemed his church, and he will see his church through all that comes against it. So we go on now to the final topic of our passage, verse 34, how the disciples received this, or ultimately at this point did not receive it in terms of their understanding. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. How do we explain this inability to understand these words? I mean, on one hand, we look at it and we think, this is rather straightforward. I mean, in terms of plain English, grammatically, this is doable. We can can process this if we have a basic reading skills, or you think, of course, Jesus speaking to them. This is not that hard. Why is it that they did not understand these things? Well, is it because they did not like Jesus' prediction? I think that at least has some value of understanding this passage. Certainly in Luke 9, we know that that is the case, that Peter processed intellectually what Jesus had predicted because he rebuked Jesus for it. He didn't like it. He did understand that Jesus really meant that he was going to die and be scourged and executed. So he got that much, but he didn't understand it Spiritually, He didn't understand its purpose, its wisdom, and he didn't receive it in that sense. Now we have to note that the grammar actually is in the passive. It says this saying was hidden from them. That there was a degree of hiding. This is even more mysterious because if you look at Luke 9 verses 44 through 45, Jesus actually tells them to pay really close attention to what he's saying, and then it says that the saying was hidden from them. This is very interesting. Luke 9:44 it says, this is how Jesus begins a statement. 
let these words sink down into your ears. Sounds like he wants you to understand it, right? For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So Jesus is on one hand saying, let this sink down into your your ears. And then it says that it was hidden from them. It's hard, it's difficult to understand exactly why the reasons are for this hiding, but I would suggest, my hypothesis at the very least, is that they were not ready to receive these things. Jesus in the upper room in John 16 even says that he had many things he wanted to say to them, but they were not ready for them yet. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. So there are times where we are not quite ready to hear things. We may not have a full disclosure or revelation of things, and God in his wisdom will disclose, as, the, as, it, as wisdom would deem, what we should understand. And then following the resurrection, thankfully, They got the update. They got the understanding uh, that Jesus gave them in Luke chapter 24. It says in Luke 24 verse 45, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Now from this, I would like to draw a general principle that we need to keep in mind. Understanding the gospel requires more than grammatical or intellectual comprehension. We might stand up before an audience and carefully, in plain English, explain the facts of the gospel, and people may not get it. They might even be able to accurately recount the words that you use, but they still may not get it. It is the Spirit that must communicate truths on a spiritual level. It is the Spirit that gives light to those whose understandings have been darkened by sin. We, and because of our our lack of understanding and the effects of sin upon our minds, we cannot see the wisdom of God clearly. We cannot see these things manifested until the Spirit of God will awaken us to them, will open our minds to understand the Scriptures. And when that day comes, if you've experienced that in the past or as you continue to experience it in an ongoing, adding way, you give thanks to God for that, that understanding that He gives us. Now, while we speak about God's sovereignty in Revelation, we need to also recognize that there is a side of human responsibility for how we receive these things. And the reason I mention this is Jesus tells us a number of times in the Gospels, take heed how you hear. Luke 8, verse 18, he says, Therefore take heed how you hear, for whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. And I think our Lord was speaking to that generation. He was saying, hear the word of God is before you. You are hearing the truth. Are you going to hearken to it? Are you going to listen to it? Are you going to receive it? Be very careful what you do with what you receive. And of course, we must apply this as we come to hear the preaching of the gospel. What are we going to do with what we hear? Will we receive it as the truth of God? Will we believe it? 
And what this means then is let us not take for granted the access we have to God's revelation. And as we read it, read it and hear it preached, ask that God would grant us an increase of spiritual understanding. You, you come to the, the teaching of the word and you say, Lord, please give me understanding. Open my eyes. Uh, give me life that I may understand your word. And so we do need to be thoughtful about the opportunities we have as we come into contact with the words of Christ, just as the disciples did. And, and he was merciful to them. He was patient with them. He had a purpose in disclosing certain things to them at certain times. But clearly they needed God's help if they would understand the words of our Lord. I want to close with just a quotation from... The preface to the King James Version, and the reason I I read this is because it actually includes a helpful exhortation in regards to how we receive the word, how we receive the teachings of Christ. And this is what they said at the end of their translation as they gave this translation to the people of England. It says, It remaineth then that we commend thee to God and to the spirit of his grace, which is able to build further than we can ask or think. He removeth the scales from our eyes, the veil from our hearts, opening our wits that we may understand his word. It's God who gives understanding. Enlarging our hearts, yea, correcting our affections, that we may love it above gold and silver. Yea, that we may love it to the end. And here's their exhortation. Oh, receive not so great things in vain. Oh, despise not so great a salvation. If light be come into the world, love not darkness more than light. If food, if clothing be offered, go not naked, starve not yourselves. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But a blessed thing it is, and will bring us to everlasting blessedness in the end when God speaketh unto us to hearken, to listen. When he setteth his word before us to read it. When he stretcheth out his hand and calleth to answer. This is our answer. Here I am. Here I am to do thy will, O God. That ought to be our response as we come to the word. As Jesus reveals these things to us. May we pray for understanding and may we then receive it and believe it. Amen. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that you have given us understanding to receive these things. We ask, Lord, that continually that we would grow in our understanding, that as we read the words of God, that we would believe them. We thank you for the love of our Lord who was so committed to the redemption of his people that he went through it all the way to the end for the joy that was set before him. We praise you for your wisdom, your sovereignty accomplished, and all that you said would come to pass. Grant us now to trust your word completely. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.